0: Good evening. I'm William Hosea. Welcome once again to Bring It On. We are a multiple award-winning show celebrating 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans.
1: And good evening. I'm Amrita Myers. In tonight's broadcast, you'll also hear an expert health care analysis of the Obama-era Affordable Care Act, all in the next hour on Bring It On but first
2: our country is facing a lot of challenges right now and maybe the biggest one of all is that the people who are in charge the people who call the shots are doing every single thing they can to divide us from each other and to make us fear each other so we don't get to work on the most basic problems facing our country we see opportunistic politicians demonizing immigrants demonizing people in the lgbtq community demonizing people so that they vote, based on fear instead of love. It's nothing new under the sun, and it's not what makes America great. Diversity makes America great. People who have no advantages in our striving for opportunity, our love, our compassion, our generosity, makes America great. This country is too strong and too good to let hate and bigotry win out. to divide us will fail when they come for one of us, whether it's children being torn from their mothers at our border, African Americans who lost their lives to racist violence at a grocery store in Kentucky, or Jews who were gunned down in their synagogue. When they come for one of us, they come for all of us. who disagree with us, we are all human beings first. Our message of love and compassion for all continues to echo around Indiana and around the nation. And so, when decisions about our healthcare, our retirement, our education, our infrastructure, our civil rights, the opioid crisis, and so many other important issues that we're facing are being made, we are going to continue speaking of and speaking out for what is right and for what is fair. Yeah. And in this election, so many people use their voices so well. And we will continue
1: raising hell to fight for what is right. Yeah. <laughs> After you just heard Indiana's ninth congressional district candidate, Liz Watson, extending concession remarks to a gathering of faithful supporters on November 7th.
0: After a well-fought, valiant effort to unseat incumbent Trey Hollingsworth, we are pleased to have this gracious lady join us tonight. Here to provide her perspective and analysis on the race for Indiana's 9th Congressional District is Liz Watson. Liz, welcome to Bring It On.
3: Well, thank you for
1: having me. Hi, William. Hi, Enrica. Hi, Liz. I'm sorry you couldn't join us in the studio tonight, but we are so glad to have you with us on the show.
3: It's great to great to be here with you. Sorry, I can't be there
1: in person.
0: That's no, okay. Taking well, a, a
1: very short uh, family vacation. So, and well-deserved, uh, well-deserved.
0: Well and we're sorry to interrupt your family vacation, but uh, we're happy to have you <laughs> All on right. with us. Um, for starters, Liz, everyone knows how hard you worked. You canvassed, knocked on doors, held rallies, met with probably thousands of people in the ninth District. And compare that to Trey Hollingsworth, who refused to debate, didn't participate in any uh, candidate forums. I mean, if he had a meeting, it was one of those clandestine meetings by invitation only. And uh, on top of all of that, he voted to take away health care, knowing that's what the voters wanted. And even to the point where Republicans were, were, were lying about it, he voted to enrich himself and his family with that trillion-dollar tax scam. And after all of that, he still won. But what what does that say about voters who live in the Ninth District, if they still want to elect someone to Congress with, with that type of record?
3: Well, I, I think that the, you know, most wonderful thing about this campaign was meeting voters in the 9th District, and there are so many good people in the ninth who are working hard to make to make the change that their communities need. Um, you know, I think what we saw, and I mean, thank goodness the Democrats took the House, and, and what we saw on the election night is that there were Midwestern races that were won. Um, but in Indiana uh, and some other Midwestern states like this one, uh, we saw, you know, voters double down um, mm. on, on the some of the things that, you know, caused Trump to win in 2016. And, um, you know, Trump came to Indiana three times in about, I think, the month before the election to um, stump for Mike Braun and, and actually, um, you know, had Trey on stage with him. And Trey uh, did some um, campaigning with one of Trump's, uh, sons or son-in-laws, um, you know, and and really was pushing hard on a message that was um, anti-immigrant. Uh, mm. You know, the, the with, you know leading with the caravan, trying to do everything he could. You know, this politics politics of distraction to distract Hoosiers mm. from from thinking about. Um, the fact that you know their health care their Medicare their social security you know their livelihoods were at stake um, and trying to convince people to vote on fear mm. and um, you know he did that with a megaphone and um, I, I saw actually the Republican door knocker um, at, at a you know somebody's home the coordinated campaign door knocker you know and um, Trey's door knocker had you know he was um, his, his opposition to sanctuary cities on it Mm. I mean, how many sanctuary cities do we have in Indiana? You know, but he's leading on those issues that he thinks can, can pull um, Republicans away from voting you know, based on the things that would improve their families' lives. And, and unfortunately, it worked.
1: That's one of the things that I was you know, wanting to talk about is, <laughs> as far as I know, do we have any sanctuary cities in Indiana? We do not. We do not. Not even one. And it's this, you know, psychological doubling down thing that has me really perplexed. We have not one sanctuary city in this state that, um and when you when you start talking facts to people about things like, you know what are you what are you going to do when you have people in your family, when you have children with pre-existing conditions and your health care, uh-huh. you know, like when you have a child with asthma, right? What are you going to do? I mean, when you start talking facts and they just literally don't refuse to listen. Like they're, I mean, what, I mean, you, you know, you, I mean, I, I was going around talking to people openly campaigning for you. um, And, and I was, um, I was just perplexed by the fact that when I was, you know, talking to people about actual logical issues about people in their family who had pre-existing health conditions and what was going to happen when they lost their health care. They just, it was like they were literally unwilling to have a conversation with me about about logical, practical after effects of this. I mean, how do you get through to people about things like this?
3: And so, you yeah, know, that, that's a really good question and, and something that I'm thinking about a lot now, and also how do we have a conversation about immigration reform, which is something that's been bipartisan and that we know we need, and how do we kind of, you know, take the fear out of that for people by just saying, like, let's talk about it. What are you afraid of, you know? Um, And and I will say that I felt like when I went to people's doors and, and, you know, we, we knocked on... Can't remember if the final, I think the final figure was $129,000. So it was an unprecedented level of effort across the district. Um, You know, and we had for Democrats, we had massive voter turnout, but it was, still wasn't enough because mm-hmm. Republicans had massive voter turnout. Right. You know, we had presidential-level voter turnout. Um, but when we went to the doors, you know, I felt like a lot of those conversations, not all of them, but maybe 50 percent, were successful. Mm. But the problem is, you know, if you if you knock on 129,000 doors, people are home, I don't know, one-sixth of the time, right? So you just cannot have enough conversations. And then that, you know, unfortunately that way, you know, over that, that compressed period of an election, you know, it was 15 months, I mean, it felt like a lifetime. But honestly, um, that, that process of change, I think, is slower than we would like it to be. Mm. And, and you know, those one-on-one conversations, um, you know, there, there aren't enough of them, <laughs> as many as we had. Um, and then you're right, a lot of the time you're not successful. And, I mean, I can tell you in the months, it's really interesting because I, I felt like I didn't see the anti-immigrant sentiment sort of creep in um, to the to this you know profound extent until the month before the election, and mm-hmm. then it was like I just kept hearing it everywhere I went, and I and I knew that that was Fox News and that was Trump, and you know, and that was just this narrative being pushed hard. It
1: exploded,
3: right? And and so you know, I had this experience of being in Ellisville and knocking on a door. And, um, you know, I asked this voter in the middle of, health, you know, who is an over-65 voter, you know, and, and my opponent had voted to cut Medicare. There is a, There you know, was a planned Republican attack, which can now be stopped by the Democrats on Social Security to pay for the, you know, tax cut for the rich, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, I said, what's your number one issue? And this guy said to me... It's, it's immigrants, you know, uh, you know, Hoosiers don't realize we are going to be overrun unless we stop them at our border, you know, and I just thought, yeah. you know, where, where are you getting this? And, you know, this is like so, you know, so much misinformation. <coughs>
1: things but, you know, that are so much more relevant to uh, over 65 voters should be Social Security and Medicare and things right. that are going uh, to directly affect that person's life.
3: And it was, and I just hit a wall. Right. Um, and, and I was at several retirement communities in the month, before the election, and at every single one, um, you know, somebody would pipe in. Um, I mean, I, I remember this one that really jarring conversation where, uh, you know, we were talking and we were talking about Medicare and Social Security and, you know, all those issues that are affecting seniors, um, and, then, and then this woman piped in, and, and she said, are you for open borders? And I said, no, I, I'm not for open borders. And actually she said it by way of, I was somebody had asked me about my position on unions, and she said, well, we don't have to discuss that because unions don't matter anymore. What we need to talk about is your support for open borders. I think that's the way she phrased it. So I said, well, I, I think we need civil discourse, and unions do matter, and I'm going to answer that question, and they're very important to the middle class.
1: Through mm-hmm. so
3: your question, and I explained, you know, I support, of course, you know, like the vast majority of Americans, I support the fact that nations have borders, but we can have immigration enforcement that's sane and treats treat people humanely and with dignity. And I gave this whole explanation. And then as, as soon as I was done, she said, so you're for open borders.
1: Oh, my goodness.
3: There, so there was no ability to kind of present yeah. the facts and be heard. You and just I just
1: talked about immigration policies and sane policies, and she heard open borders.
3: Yeah. And I said, you know, we, we need it for people who are here, who are, you know, playing by our rules. We need to have a pathway and blah, blah, blah. You know, OK, so you're for open borders. You know, even though I, I started with no, I am
1: not. You started you know, and, with no when you were talking that, about op- pathways to citizenship and she heard open borders. Yeah. So fear mongering really does work fear is what works. you're saying. Just mm-hmm. like sex and fear works. How do we get to
3: that place where we have the conversation Where, you know, and I held about, I think, 16 town halls in the campaign, but a lot of people don't come to town halls, right? They come here from a Democratic candidate.
1: And you know what I was, what I found really interesting is that I'm having these conversations not just in person, but I'm having them on Twitter, I'm having them on Facebook, Mm -hmm. I'm having them, I'm also having them in person in various formats, I'm using a multiple of strategies and um, sometimes they, sometimes people are open, but boy, it's amazing. People of all different ages and backgrounds, the resistance.
0: Well, Liz, um, Mm -hmm. go ahead, go ahead.
3: Oh, it's something I've been thinking about, and this is just a very, um, you know, sort of nascent type of thought, but is, you know where where the so I did all of this. We know the results. I you know I won forty three and a half percent of the vote. My opponent didn't.
2: You know, didn't even campaign any of it.
3: <laughs> Right. There it was, it, it was this one ad where he talked about how I was for open borders and raising everyone's taxes. Yeah.
1: They,
3: they gave the most false political campaign ad of the season, and that the only thing that was true was that his opponent's name was Liz Watson. But, of course, and, and so it was debunked, you know, um, by the, you know, by an indie news outlet, um, I can't remember which one, CBS or NBC or something. And then it ran for weeks on end. So so we've sort of, like, lost touch with the importance of truth.
1: And oh, wow. <laughs> in that,
3: in that, you know, being in that space, it's, it's like, where do we go from there? And I've been thinking about, you know, the role of the Democratic Party as, I mean, and, and sort of why I got in this in the first place is, is wanting to, you know, help our communities thrive and wanting to help solve some of, some of our most pressing problems. Mm. So, you know, um, health care and making sure our veterans get the care they need mm-hmm. and making sure that people earn living wages and that our small towns, you know, a lot of this district is rural, and I got to see, you know, so much of the, you know, the things good things are happening in the way of economic development to help our small towns thrive, and a lot of our towns that are really struggling. But I, I think the question is, you know, can the Democratic Party sort of start thinking about retail politics in a, in a little bit of a different way? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not an electoral issue so much as, as be the party that that delivers for people, mm-hmm. right? We want to get results for people, and what would that look like? I know, you know, we did a lot of. Work around. There was the Your Voice Matters campaign. Um, you know it, where Democrats were going door to door. You know this was you know, over a year ago. Just asking. You know what? What are your concerns in your community, and how could we make them better? And you know maybe the thing is we just we just start thinking about how would we deliver on those things. You know and be be a party that is about actually meeting people's needs. And maybe maybe you know showing instead of telling Mm. is the way um, to try to get people sort of over that over that great divide.
0: Well, um,
3: it's something I'm thinking
0: about. It appears that there was no blue wave in Indiana.
1: (laughs) It got redder. I think that's fair. Yeah. It got redder.
0: But Liz, do you think that in all of your uh, tireless campaign efforts that you were able to move the needle a little bit in the ninth district?
3: Well, I I do. I mean, I certainly had, you know, a good number of Republicans uh, who were supporting me and who were excited about my campaign because it was real clear to them that, you know, I wanted our communities to succeed and, and that I was going to be somebody who was going to fight for every single Hoosier. And I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. I wanted to fight for you. Um, And I think that's important. I think, you know, the conversations that we were having were important. I think probably the most important thing is the number of people who got mobilized. Mm -hmm. We had 1,500 volunteers on the campaign over the course, including the primary and the general. You know, and those are people who are going to go on and... Some are going to run their own campaigns and right. work on other campaigns. They're going to work on other issues. Um, and people who said, you know what, I think, you know, I think Indiana's worth fighting for. And they knew it was an uphill battle. And, you know, they just put their hearts into it. And, you know, so I, um, I'm a mom. I have two kids. I, you know, have a busy life myself. And whenever I saw these people who were out there who I knew had a million other things that they could be doing on a Saturday or Sunday and were sort of saying, you know, that's okay, forget the laundry, I'll figure out how to grocery shop, you know, at midnight. I'm going to go spend my whole day knocking doors. I mean, I was kind of blown away, to be honest, and and I always felt it's very humbling, you know, to see people putting that level of effort in, um, but I think that their effort really matters, because I think that's effort that's going to continue. You know, one of the best things that happened on the campaign was the young people who got involved, and... So on election day, I, I was at the um, IMU, and I was talking to students who were standing on this very long line to vote, and it was so exciting, you know, to see their level of enthusiasm to go in and vote, and they were not getting out of line. You know, they were waiting, um, even though it was, it was quite a wait, you know, because they knew um, that it was their future at stake, and they understood what was at stake, and so we had a, a big, um, you know, student group that was out uh, campaigning for me, and we actually put together this summer a program that I was really proud of called Democracy Summer, where we trained students in, you know, progressive democratic values and activism, but also, so, you know, we did different, um, different sections on different issues, but also then we talked about uh, how would you? So we did little lectures, like many, many lectures on Mondays and Fridays, brown bags, and brought people in. And then we also talked about how would you. Um Run a campaign. If you wanted to be a field director, or a campaign manager, or a finance uh, director, what would that look like? And so, you know, we were trying to help build the bench of, of progressive Democrats here in Indiana who can run and win, um, because we need, you know, we need that infrastructure, and and I think we're seeing that get built up, and that's really important. And I think it's, you know, it's a long road, and this. You know, this is a difficult time, um, to, and which is the understatement of the century. I mean, we know that Indiana leaned into Trump, and that's a very hard fact. Um, mm. and, and, you know, for those of us who see, uh, you know, that he's—, he's um, you know, playing up uh, the hatred uh, in our country and playing to people's fears and trying to pull that out of people um, and playing to our worst. And, and we know that we've leaned in and that we have to figure out how to pull ourselves out of that. Um, and I think that this infrastructure that we built is important and will carry forward.
1: We definitely need to keep that enthusiasm going as we think about the next two years. And I think that's really important to have mobilized all those young people on our campus. I think that's really, really critical. Yeah, forward.
3: yeah, they're and they're, you know, they're just so inspiring. I mean, they they were devastated by, you know, by having lost, which was hard to see, you know, but they're new to this, right? And they've they've never seen a loss um and it must be be you know, terrible to have that happen for the first time. I mean, my my heart just broke for them. But, you know, I know that they'll stay in it. And you know, they and many of them have talked to me about wanting to run themselves and you know, the things that they want to work on and, and
1: that's so exciting. Well, that's the demographic that I work amongst full time and so <laughs> I've been trying to make sure that they don't lose hope. <laughs>
0: right. Nice. Liz, what what are your thoughts about a a path for Democrats to regain the majority uh, in the state house?
3: Well, that's a great question. I mean, I mm. do think that um, you know some of the things that you're hearing now, if you read any of these national, you know, the national sort of punditry are, um, you know, that the states where uh, where Democrats are doing well at the state level, the federal level, um, you know are are areas where there are, cities, you know, or the places where Democrats are doing well are are areas where there are cities and suburbs, they're areas that are more racially diverse, they're areas that have higher education levels. And so you're seeing at the national level some degree of writing off of rural areas, and Mm -hmm. I really think that's a mistake. And I, you know, I refuse to, I refuse to let people write off um, our rural areas as places where Democrats can't win, because frankly, you know, the, the things that we stand for, um, making sure that hardworking people can get ahead, making sure people have health care, making sure we have economic development that allows everyone to thrive, um, you know, those are things that, um, and, and, you know, um, criminal justice reform is a major issue for our rural areas. So mm. you know, those are things that we really need um, folks to focus on. So I think digging in on the local issues and showing that that we, as I said, are the party that actually responds to the needs, you know, to the very local and specific needs of communities is so important. And that's, you know, that's what I tried to do in the campaign, you know, if it was visiting the, you know, um, food pantry in Scottsburg and learning that, you know, seniors couldn't often couldn't get to the food pantry because they didn't have enough gas at the end of the month because their sewer bills had gone up or, um, you know, being in Franklin and seeing actually that they have managed to get some public investment through their redevelopment commission to revitalize their downtown, and they are starting to be a place, you know, where uh, people can thrive, you know, or or being in Corden and realizing that their, you know, their school was just, Suffering because they actually have a, a meth crisis and, and these kids are coming to school, um, you know, with, with mm-hmm. unfortunately, from um, hotels or homeless shelters and, you know, with parents who are in the grips of addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of, I, I think, figuring out, you know, how do we respond to these very real pressures on these communities and, and make sure that, as Democrats, you know, we're showing the value that we want to add. Um, In these places, and that's that's obviously the way that I ran the campaign, and I think it's I I do think that it's the path forward is is to be very focused on on people's needs and focus on listening, and you know I and I think we ought to be continuing that. Um, And I'm not going to say it's an easy road; it's not. I mean the grip the grip that um, Trump has, you know, I I think Hollingsworth was able to capitalize on that, Um, and I and I think you know playing to people's fears, unfortunately, worked. Um, I think we have to think about how we how we have some conversations on things like immigration, you know, that are these kind of hot button issues in our rural areas, um, and 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 how we sort of you know meet people where they are and and figure out how we can move forward together in a way that is um, compassionate and and is actually in the end going to improve all of our lives.
1: Isn't it interesting how the discussion about the um Caravan has completely evaporated since the election.
3: I am not at all surprised.
1: I mean, I'm being sarcastic.
3: (laughs) I know. Yeah, it's probably
1: too soon for humor on from me on that. I mean, the discussion has completely evaporated.
0: And he just announced a troop drawdown. Has he? Yes, he has. And for
1: Thanksgiving.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I was in. I was in Lawrence County, and I was having a conversation um, with some seniors, uh, a a group of seniors, uh, about Medicare and Social Security and some specific issues that that this group was facing. And, you know, and I got, um, you know, from, and we're we're talking, and then from from the back of the room, you know, a a table of guys pipes up, you know, but what about the caravan and, you know, I said, well, you know, look, if, if the caravan reaches the United States, we have a process for people who seek asylum and they'll go through this process and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and then, you know, and it's orderly and there's no there's no suggestion that you know, anything other than that, you
1: know,
3: is, is going to happen And um, There's paperwork
1: they have to follow?
3: And, <laughs> right, right and, and, then, and then he said, but what if they rush the border? They can't be
1: stopped, you know, like these Goodness gracious! Rush, rushing the border, you a know. A bunch and, of women with children who have been walking for months over hundreds of miles? Right,
3: are, you know and that is a concern in,
1: in Lawrence County in
3: Indiana, you know, and and so I said, look, you know, and, I, 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 and sometimes I think maybe I hit things on the nose too hard. I said, I said look, the, you are, we cannot fall prey to the distraction that they're trying to create here. You know, what's happening is, you know, uh, Republicans don't want you to think about the fact that they're coming for your Medicare and Social Security, so they're throwing this in front of you to distract you. And if you fall for it, you know, then it's going to be much easier for them to take away. You know, the things that you earned and you ought to keep, and and you know, that's sort of the
1: most plainly that you can state that uh, they're carrying babies and backpacks. I mean, yeah, it's just, but that's what I can't understand. And what about compassion? That, I mean, what about mm-hmm. compassion? These people are escaping violence and war, and w- what happened to like. Christian compassion, which is what's a, which which is the what the Republicans are constantly going on about i well, I just don't, I don't understand you,
3: I actually saw a lot of
1: Christian compassion on the campaign trail and, and so I want to be clear about that I think and I a am lot... a Christian and I'm asking that from that place because I am a yeah. i mean, yes, I'm asking that from a place of confusion as as a well, believer,
3: yeah, yeah, so I you know and, and <laughs> what I will say is that, you know, I ran into a lot of people who I think really did live their values in a very meaningful way. I, you know, I shared, I think William may have heard me share the story of um, toward the end of the campaign, I happened to be in Mitchell, and I I met a woman who um, was, I think, evangelical, you know, who prayed with me for... um, you know, for God to watch over me in the last week of the campaign because she understood how hard I'd been working and Mm. how how much I was going to fight for people who were in the grips of substance abuse as Mm. her her son and daughter-in-law had been. Mm. And, you know, and it was a really beautiful thing. I mean, she took my hands and prayed for me. Um, And, you know, I was in a lot of churches over the course of the campaign, and Mm -hmm. and, um, I will say, you know, I was incredibly well-received in in particular in the churches, in the predominantly black churches um, that I was in, where I think, you know, people were really ready for somebody who was going to fight um, for justice, for fairness, for equality, for dignity, for everyone, and who was going to fight for these, you know, poor families at our border who had been ripped apart, who understood the plight of our dreamers. Um, mm. And so, you know, and, and that was a beautiful thing, to, to feel that support. Um, you know, I was in, I think, actually, the Sunday before the election, I happened to be at three different churches, um, mm. which were all predominantly black churches, and, you know, just this felt this outpouring of overwhelming love and support uh, from the churches I was in. And so... I want to say I think there are a lot of, of really good, strong, caring, compassionate people, you know, in the 9th District. And so I think that the work we're doing is, is work that is meaningful, and I think it's work that, that will um, will pay off in the future. I think, you know, um, elections are hard. There are winners and losers, and, and you know, I, I do think that there are some very important gains that we made here that, you know, aren't reflected yeah. in, um, mm. you know, the vote
0: share. Well, you know, considering what happened uh, in the rest of the country, if there is a path for Democrats to, to, uh, to regain majority in, in the state legislature, it, I mean, it is obvious it's going to take Indiana a while mm. longer mm-hmm. than, than other uh, areas of the country.
3: Yeah. I I think, look, I mean, you know, Trump won our district, you know, um, by a (laughs) massive amount. Uh, I think, you know, Trey beat Shelley um, in 16 by about 14 points. um, Yeah. And Trump won by a heck of a lot more than that. Um, So, you know, this is a district that leaned into Trump. I, I actually ran several points ahead of Joe Donnelly in every single county in our district, which... I I I you know not exactly sure how to read that but it it does suggest that the groundwork that we did um did did pay off and have some return it just didn't have enough return you know so I think that that
1: well I think there's something to be said for the fact that you actually campaigned and you went out and met people and you actually stuck to progressive values yeah and I really admire that. I mean, every time we've tried to go to Trey's office and meet with him, he's snuck out the back door or just not bothered to show up. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about his constituents. I've been doing, I mean, I've been here doing this work for a long time. And so I have to, I mean, we admire you for that, Liz.
3: Well, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting in a campaign because, you know, there are a lot of consultants that want to pull you in every direction, um, but I think you know, if you sort of stay true to yourself and what you think is right, uh, that's just it's the only way to, it's really I think the only way to run, and so that's what I did, and certainly I had people saying, well that's too progressive for Indiana you know, and, and you know you you saw these crazy um equivalencies being drawn, you know, so I support Medicare for All, and that's a socialist concept since when is Medicare socialist? You know, I mean, just just things that um, – but honestly, these are narratives that are being pushed from the right, and we don't have to buy into them, and, you know, we can insist <laughs> on health care for everyone. Um, we can insist that, you know, everyone deserves a living wage job. We can insist on strong civil rights protections. And, you know, these are things actually, um, you know, I mean, why – in God's name, are those things considered in any way uh, progressive? Those should be absolutely mainstream ideas. I, I mean, wish... You know what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> You're it's, absolutely right, Liz. Unfortunately, we are completely out of time with you, believe it or not. I wish we could keep talking to you, but it is it is people like you, and I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who are you know, preaching those words, and we, we have to continue to hear from people like you. Um, because you're right. Why are these things so crazy? They're not crazy. Those are the kinds of values we need. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. Our thanks to Indiana 9th Congressional District candidate Liz Watson for joining us to provide her analysis and perspective on her recent attempt to unseat incumbent Trey Hollingsworth. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us this evening. Well, thank you both for having me. Bye-bye. Good night.
0: Good night. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org.
4: I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear. This is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right true or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. But my assessment is the law currently allows no further viable remedy. In the coming days, we will be filing a major federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia for the gross mismanagement of this election and to protect future elections from unconstitutional actions. We will channel the work of the past several weeks into a strong legal demand for reform of our election systems in Georgia. And I will not waver in my commitment, a lived commitment, to work across party lines and across divisions to find a common purpose in protecting our democracy.
5: Well, I tell you, it is is quite a treat to see that y'all are still here. Uh, On behalf of Chris and Kristen, uh, my wife R.J., our families, uh, we could not be prouder of the way that we ran this race. We couldn't be prouder. We, We could not be more thankful for the support that was shown by each and every one of you all the way along this path. We recognize that, you know, we didn't, we didn't win it tonight. Uh, we didn't win this transaction, but I want y'all to know that is just it, a transaction. That what we believe in still holds true today. Uh, I gotta tell you, as I stand here on the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida, the campus that gave so much to me and to my wife rj Uh, many a days for those students who were around when we were here as students we marched plenty of times from this very set up to the Capitol. we let our voices be heard we didn't shrink from the challenges we didn't shrink from power we spoke truth to power Uh, and just because uh, we didn't always come out victorious we didn't retreat we stood up. We stood strong. We spoke out because we recognized that we had power, too.
0: You just heard concession speeches from gubernatorial candidates Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Andrew Gillum in Florida. We'll share reflections and observation on these two critical races in future broadcasts of Bring It On.
1: At the top of the hour, we shared that you will hear an expert analysis of the Obama-era Affordable Care Act. Here to take us on a deep dive of this much-celebrated and much-maligned health care legislation is Attorney Robert Stone. Attorney Stone, welcome to Bring It On.
6: Actually, Dr. Stone. But
0: that's fine. <laughs> yeah, him too. Dr. Him
1: Stone, too. my apologies. <laughs> I'm going to blame whoever made up this sheet that I'm reading from. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm I'm just an all-around great guy. I don't have a title. (laughs) Well, uh,
1: Dr. Stone, thank you for joining us this evening.
0: I'm happy to be here. Um, We hear a lot about the Affordable Care Act, and and it really is complicated Mm -hmm. because I hear that the administration is doing this and that. I hear people pronouncing the death of the Affordable Care Act, uh, insurance companies pulling out. Uh, So what exactly is the status of the ACA right now?
6: Well, nobody predicted the ACA would still be standing here almost two years into the Trump uh, pregnancy, the Trump presidency. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't either, yes. The Trump pregnancy. Nobody predicted that. But that's kind of the way politics has been turned on its head Mm. lately. Um, Everybody, all the Republicans who ran against the Affordable Care Act um, uh, two years ago, Today lying. tended to not, you know, in this last election, they tended not to, although Trey was confident enough that he, he still dissed the Affordable Care Act. and um, But most uh, nationally, a lot of people didn't because they realized the Affordable Care Act is, is popular. Mm-hmm. So, what's left of the Affordable Care Act is most of it is left. Um, you know, in Indiana, there are uh, about 350,000 people who got coverage uh, through the expansion of Medicaid. So that was the biggest single issue in Indiana that uh, we, we were able to cover a whole lot of people who weren't covered. And then there were about 200,000 people who got insurance through, um, through the insurance exchanges, and people tend to – there's been a lot more talk and publicity about the exchanges and the problems, you know, getting the exchanges off the ground initially. Um, uh, but uh, actually more people – more coverage was expanded through the Medicaid expansion. So the exchanges are still there. The Medicaid expansion is still there. It's all still under threat. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, just because they haven't gotten it done now, they may do it through the courts. There's the you know there is a case in federal court in Texas that um, where a group of 20 states attorneys general have uh, challenged uh, again the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act and one of those 20 states is Indiana. Uh, our attorney general Curtis Hill, uh, unfortunately, is part of this group. Um, and then there are uh, 17 states who uh, are fighting this thing. No, we don't want to. We don't think the Supreme Court should declare the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Now, Mitch McConnell has said since the election, um, we're not going to push repeal of the ACA. That hasn't stopped Trey, who you know, he'll say whatever he wants to say, uh, from saying that he's going to still push to uh, get rid of the ACA. But McConnell said it very clearly, you know, with a Democratic House, it's not going to happen. So, I don't know what's going to happen legislatively. I think the Democrats are going to be able to protect the ACA from within Congress, and we can talk more and more because I'm kind of getting I'm getting away from your question here. But the um, but there is a real concern about this this, this case, um, which uh, is filed in uh, uh, federal court in ten, in Texas. The oral arguments happened in September. The ruling is expected any day now, oh, yeah. um, and the mm. path would be then from there, from from this federal court to the federal appeals court, and mm-hmm. then to the affordable then to the Supreme Court. So those would be the steps. Bang bang, um, and then with Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, you know, there's a possibility that um, you know that we could run into some serious problems with all or large parts of the Affordable Care Act just getting struck down by the court, and then. We're going to have a mess on our hands. Now, okay. most people say, well, they think it probably is going to get through the court in Texas, and they think it probably will get to the Supreme Court, and they think it probably won't go um, past—the Supreme Court won't uphold it, but we don't know. And so uh, one thing I'll just say to listeners tonight is— um, um, you know, our attorney general has got Indiana in the suit to try to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. It could cost uh, three hundred fifty thousand people's insurance on Medicaid expansion. It could cover the pe- it could cost the people who are getting their insurance through the exchanges. But even worse than that is that one of the things they're specifically going after is the protection for people to have health insurance with preexisting conditions, and and there are. Millions of people in Indiana who, uh, if we went back to the pre Affordable Care Act era, where if you had a pre existing condition, uh, you could be turned down for insurance unless you, know, you had to, you could, the only way you could really get insured with a pre existing condition, which could just be diabetes or high blood pressure or anything, um, you could only get insurance through an employer plan, a group plan. Uh, you couldn't get individual insurance.
1: I was going to ask you to list some of those pre-existing conditions, but you just mentioned diabetes and high high blood pressure.
6: I mean, just basic stuff. basic stuff. Th- Pregnancy, basic too, stuff. Right? Pregnancy could be. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be a pre-existing condition like cancer or something. It could yeah. be. But I,
1: I mean, even asthma c- falls even under that asthma, list. Exactly. And so many so many people's children that I know have asthma. Yes. They're, I mean, in this in this state, asthma allergies big big, deal. big yes. problem. Right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Where do the uh, insurance companies stand in all of this? Uh, So the insurance companies play it both ways against the middle. Of course they
6: do. The insurance companies, you know, they complained bitterly uh, while the Affordable Care Act was moving through Congress, but they were also working to try to uh, change that bill or modify that, that, that bill to make it favorable to them. And the Affordable Care Act, my biggest Gripe against it is that it actually ended up giving this huge subsidy to the insurance companies yep. because uh, because it subsidized um, people to to pay their insurance premiums, um, and so the insurance companies, are, you know, they're big, they're powerful, they're smart. Uh, they're not necessarily evil, but they're just doing what they got to do, uh, and and that ends up being evil to people they're who are greedy.
0: hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plus, they ended up being guaranteed millions of new uh, customers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They were guaranteed through, through the ACA. millions
6: of new paying customers uh, through the ACA. Uh, and so even though they have whined, complained, and gnashed mm-hmm. their teeth, mm-hmm. um, their stock prices have gone up. Right, Their profits have gone up. Anthem Blue Cross, just up the road in Indianapolis, has done very, very well under the Affordable Care Act. So they're they they they're always going to whine and say, oh, you know, we're not we're going to drop coverage in this county and that state. Um, but somebody's going to come along and, and make the money because the Affordable Care Act is pretty good to the insurance companies.
0: Yeah, sometimes just listening to all the uh, reporting and the news, it's it's hard to peel back the layers and see what's what's actually there, which is mm-hmm. why we'll probably get you back on here, you know, a couple of times. But another question I wanted to ask is uh, since the Trump administration was not able to just kill it outright. Right. So they tried a bunch of different maneuvers to to, to damage it. Right. Like they uh, shut down the website during open enrollment, right. they shortened the open enrollment, they right. cut funding for advertising. So how much damage did those uh, uh, antics do to the to the ACA? Yeah,
6: so one thing we're gonna not know for another month or two is what's happened uh, with this current uh, open enrollment period, mm. because uh, of the fifty states, um, uh, Indiana en- ended up this year being something like. 46th uh, in the amount of money spent to help facilitate the exchange. They cut Indiana's exactly the publicity budget and the navigators and stuff. They, they cut it drastically. Mm-hmm. So Indiana is just on bare bones in terms of <clears throat> helping people, um, uh, supporting people to sign up for the exchange. And so we don't know yet what that's going to look like because the open enrollment, I believe, ends uh, December 15th. So it's coming up here in just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the other stuff they've done um, to weaken it, um, you know, they took away the individual mandate uh, or the penalty for the individual mandate. And exactly how that's going to play out is remains unclear. Go ahead.
0: But that was supposed to be You might to well explain
1: that for some of our listeners. Yeah, yeah.
0: That, that individual mandate was supposed to be the lifeblood for uh, the ACA. Isn't that right?
6: Right. So um, I'll see if I can explain this relatively simply. So the idea is uh, if you buy insurance and um, why would you buy insurance if you're healthy? Um, and with the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, but why Why would you even have an insurance system if people who are sick can't get insured? So if you're sick, you've got a pre-existing condition, which, like I said, could be anything from cancer to high blood pressure. An insurance company looks at you and says, oh, I think that's kind of a high-risky person to sign up. Uh, I, I don't want to take—we don't want to take care of those people. Well, they made a whole thing. They said, OK, got to take care of everybody who can afford. Now, there's still— Millions of people being left out because they can't afford coverage, um, but they said, "Okay, you can buy insurance, and we can't discriminate you against you as an insurance company because of this pre-existing condition." But therefore, what we got to do is we got to then everybody's got to be in the pool. Every we got to every so they so they, no matter this,
1: whether you have a pre-existing condition or right, not,
6: you got to get insurance. And, and 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 if that's the way you're going to do it to sell insurance, you've, you've got to then say, "Okay, everybody's got to be in" because. At some point, you may get sick. It really isn't fair to say I'm not going to pay in until I get sick, and then I'm right. going to try to get insurance. So right now, we're in this kind of funny middle ground because they took away the penalty for not having insurance. That's called the individual mandate, um, and they and they and the insurance companies are kind of caught in a funny position. Now, you know, my answer would be we should just include everybody in a system. Um, and use the system we already have of Medicare and expand it to cover everybody. Because you got to get – insurance works by having the largest possible risk pool. Everybody, we're all in this together. You know, you could
0: call yeah. it solidarity. Uh, imagine that. Uh, auto insurance, everybody's required to have it. Yes. Know? Well, I was actually just about to it.
1: say it's like having car insurance. Mm-hmm, Everyone yeah. is mand- – you have to have it. Right. Yep, you don't have a choice. Right. Well, you could drive uninsured, but then you're taking a huge risk if you get caught.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Like there's a penalty. There's a penalty. Yeah. A penalty. yeah. Um, I read something here just today, just this morning, and uh, it was an article. I can't remember who wrote it, what publication it was, but it was saying that uh, insurance company uh, um, profit for medical care from the healthcare industry was not legal until Nixon. Uh, signed it into law back during his term in office. And it has something to do with a deal he made with his uh, friends that ran the Kaiser uh, Corporation. You know anything about that?
6: I'm not exactly – you know, what Nixon is most famous for is um, bringing in the idea uh, of managed care and the idea that um, – People would have these um, gatekeepers who would control when you go to specialists, um, and they would be trying to uh, manage the cost of medical care. So there may have been something there about profit. I, I don't remember. But Nixon's big thing was he wanted to try to bring down the cost of health care, but he didn't want to cross over into um, any kind of a universal health care system. But strangely enough, if you actually look at the original roots of the Affordable Care Act of Obamacare. It was actually from people in the Nixon administration um, that that, that's actually, if you look back, this idea that there should be an individual mandate and and some kind of employer mandate actually was given, was first talked about during the Nixon administration by Republicans, um, all as a way to push back against Ted Kennedy. And the Democrats who wanted to expand Medicare to cover
0: everybody. Even back then. Even back then. Yeah,
6: well,
1: you're talking to a Canadian
0: Ah, who
1: grew up with universal Mm health care. So even after 22 years here, I'm perplexed by why this is such a um, confusing and uh, contentious item. Mm -hmm. What's the problem? Yeah. We all pay in. We all get out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Nobody has to go bankrupt, uh, you know, lose their house and worry about whether or not they can afford to feed their kids in order to save their spouse or other child from, you know, dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I personally actually know a family that had to file for bankruptcy twice because one of their children actually had leukemia. Why should anyone have to do that? Uh, It absolutely makes no sense and boggles the mind and breaks my heart.
6: It, it is horrible. It's
1: horrifying. It is horrible. Number- no one should have to make that d- sacrifice.
6: Not no. only is no one. Uh, is illness and, med- and medical bills the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country, but the number one illness that causes bankruptcy is cancer. Is cancer. And that is something that is like a national disgrace. Yes. It is a horror. And the Canadian system is— is marvelous. You know, they call their system Medicare. It's it's not perfect. Of course not. Um, there is no, no, no perfect thing. system. There's no perfect system. And they system. negotiate
0: drug prices.
6: They negotiate drug prices. Uh, they take care of everybody. People don't go bankrupt there. Right. Um, the point is, care. is
1: that, you know, my parents will never move to the U.S., even though I live here, because, at you know, they're like, we're not going to we're not gonna end up on the street homeless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. There's there's I mean, there's in their their seniors, they're retired and uh, you know.
0: One thing that I always tell anybody who, who opposed uh Obamacare or or just that concept, these people who are trying to take away health care, if they're ever ever able to do that, guess who's gonna be left with health care? The ones who are trying to take it away from everybody else—it's called yeah.
1: The one percent will always have health.
0: Yeah, yeah, yep, exactly. So, so why do these people, uh, could, you know, consistently go out and vote for for people who want to take it away from? I know. It?
1: Well, yeah. and this is what I found very interesting. Right after after Trump was elected, and they went to places like Appalachia and very really impoverished parts of Kentucky, yes. where the poor had voted. Um, for right. t- Trump, on the basis of the fact that he would take away Obamacare, yes, right. And they asked, you know, these folks, why did you vote for the forty-fifth president? Because we don't want that Obamacare. And they said, but do you like the affordable? You know, do you like the Affordable Care Act? Oh, yes, we love the Affordable Care Act, but we don't want yes. that Obamacare. It's actually the same thing. Well, exactly. no, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> And they were just kind of stunned. But we, we don't want to lose our health care. We like it. It's the first time in our lives that we've had it and we can yes. finally go to the doctor. And and when it was explained to them that these were the same two things, these impoverished folks in Kentucky were horrified at the thought that they were going to lose Healthcare, for the first time in their lives that they that they had, and they were like, "Hang on a second. You mean we went to the polls and voted against health care, but we want to keep our health care. But they had been hoodwinked into voting against that horrible Obamacare because they hated that black man, Obama so much. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is the kind of thing that just makes me think, hmm
0: yeah, right? And some of them still didn't accept it, you know, even after that. But hey, we are uh, just about out of time, Robert. Uh, you know, I, I was actually serious when I when I mentioned having you back on, mm-hmm. because this thing isn't over yet. No. right and so we're going to need to uh, explain this. A little more going forward as the situation progresses,
1: right? Like, how come Trump, in the last two years, didn't just wipe out the Affordable Care Act when he ran, saying that's what he was going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots to
6: talk about. I'd Lots be happy to, to come about.
1: back. <laughs> thank you. Well, we will we will have to have you back. So, uh, you know, it's we, we just we do want to take the time to thank Dr. Robert Stone. See, I'm not going to mess it up the second time <laughs> for his expert analysis of the uh, of the Obama era Affordable Care Act, the current opener enrollment period is from November 1st, 2018 to December the 15th, 2018. Existing 2018 plans expire on December the 31st, 2018. In order to avoid any gaps in coverage, it is highly recommended that you sign up by December the 15th, 2018.
0: Bringing on is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM. And live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea.
1: And I am Amrita Myers. If you have an event or happening in the African-American community that we should know about, please send the information directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you'd like additional information about a calendar item that you've heard about tonight or any other evening, please contact us at bringiton at WFHB.org.
0: Our thanks to Indiana 9th Congressional District Candidate Liz Watson for joining us to provide her analysis and perspective on her recent attempt to unseat incumbent Trey Hollingsworth.
1: Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Taya Wilson. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Amrita Myers.
0: I'm William Hosea. Tune in next Monday, November 26th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.
1: You've been listening to Bring It On,